1: Welcome to Episode 6 of Nature Hits the Books, the show where I chat with authors about their science books. In this episode, I'm joined by Aomua Shields, an Associate Professor of Physics and Astronomy at the University of California, Irvine. Aomawa's book, Life on Other Planets, a memoir of finding my place in the universe, was published earlier this year. The book tracks her career path as a scientist and a classically trained actor, Her experiences as an African-American woman in STEM and explores science's place in culture. Some of the things we talked about in this podcast. Aomua, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Thank you for having me. It's great to be here.
1: Let's talk about memoirs then. It seems that memoirs are often written maybe at the twilight of someone's career but you're very much still researching still a researcher why is now the time to write this book
0: well for a while now it's become clear to me that i am no longer a rare magical unicorn as i once thought i was and i describe it in the book i've been contacted by people from all over the world saying i too have multiple interests i love architecture and piano or violin and weightlifting and i have no idea how to put them together and when I get those emails, it's reminded me that, you know, this is a story that needs to be told.
1: And certainly there's a lot to explore there, and maybe we'll dart around the timeline a little bit. But I think it's quite the journey to get where you are now. Maybe because the Nature Podcast, you know, we tend to talk about the latest research. Maybe we could start with talking about the here and now, I suppose. Can you tell me a little bit about your research?
0: Well, my research focuses on climate modeling. And so, what attracted me to astronomy in the first place was literally getting out with the telescope, usually, you know, somewhere where it was cold, of course, night. Now, what I do mainly is once the planet is found, that's when my work begins. Finding a planet, and you know, we're looking for planets that might have the conditions conducive to the long-term presence of liquid water on the surface. So finding a planet that orbits its star at a particular region of space where it could have these conditions makes that planet potentially habitable. But we don't actually know if it has those conditions until we characterize it. And with observations, people can find the planet, but we don't yet know for these small Earth-sized planets what's in the atmosphere, what's on the surface, a lot of factors we can't constrain yet. And so that's where those of us who are computer modelers can really do a lot to fill in the gaps. We can put what's known observationally about a planetary system or a planet into the climate model, and then we can determine how habitable the planet would be as a function of these characteristics that we can't yet constrain. Atmospheric composition, shape of the orbit, tilt of the planet's orbit, surface composition. We can do so much to fill in those gaps, and that allows the observers and the entire exoplanet community to determine which planets are the most likely to succeed in this category. Ones we want to follow up on to really look and see not only are there habitable conditions, but might there actually be an inhabited state on this planet where we're, where we're actually seeing life uh, somewhere?
1: And the listeners won't be able to see this, but your hands have started moving around when you're talking about this stuff. <laughs> this is clearly a great passion of yours, one of your passions, I suppose, and we'll come to that in a bit. But if we talk about your life, I guess, like a lot of children reading your book it seems like you changed your mind about 10 or 15 times a day about what you wanted to be when you grew up but it seems like studying the universe was baked in pretty early on But one of the things that stood out to me was that movies like Space Camp and (laughs) Top Gun have been a big influence on you, which made me smile a great deal. For our younger listeners, maybe you could explain what Space Camp is and how these movies influenced the young you.
0: Well, as far back as I can remember, the movies and the TV shows were the things that made me want to do the thing. You know, so like I was very much a child of pop culture. And so my family would sit around and we'd watch like Star Trek, The Next Generation.
1: The best one. (laughs) The
0: best one. And then when I was 12 years old, I saw this movie called... Space Camp. My seventh grade class was shown it. It's about a bunch of kids that get launched into space on the space shuttle accidentally while they're at space camp. It stars a very young Joaquin Phoenix, among others, uh, Leah Thompson, Tate Donovan. And that movie, although, you know, not an Oscar contender, <laughs> <laughs> like changed my life, changed the course of my life. I Ran home, and my family had these set of world book encyclopedias, which I loved. And yes, I had gone through different stages of wanting to be things like an orthopedist and other things throughout my life. But whenever I wanted to be something, I would pull out the volume that you know with the letter that that thing started with and look up the thing. And so that day, I ran home and pulled out the A volume and looked up astronaut and astronomy and plotted my entire career trajectory, you know. So it's And then, like, several years earlier, seeing the movie Top Gun, Kelly McGillis's character and her call sign was Charlie, Charlotte Blackwood, and she was an astrophysicist. And she was such an incredible, like, character to me. You know, she had these amazing mirror aviator glasses. I was just like, yeah, sign me up for that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I mean, you mentioned family there, and that's something that I wanted to ask you about, because... You're not from necessarily a family with astrophysics or astronomy backgrounds, right? Like your mother was an academic, but a PhD in music theory and composition, I believe. And both your parents are jazz musicians.
0: That's right. They're both musicians. My grandmother had majored in mathematics in the 1930s at Tennessee State University, but she hadn't finished her degree. And as rare as people of color and Black women in particular are in STEM fields today, imagine in the 1930s, you know, she was very much the rare magical unicorn and didn't have the kind of support that was needed. But she had that love of math and kept that love all the way through her life. But no, no one was an astrophysicist. No one was a practicing scientist in my family. So I had that interesting experience where it was like no one ever said, you know, you have a gift for science, you know, you should be a scientist. But I was strong in math in grade school. I remember like competing with mostly boys, you know, for some reason there was like the boy who had the highest math score and then there was me and we were both like vying for the highest math scores. And I kept that like I was very committed to math and science and had gone to a prestigious prep school in New Hampshire because it had its own observatory. And then I stumbled into something else while I was there at Phillips Exeter Academy.
1: Yeah, and we'll talk about that something else, which is very much the arts. And it seems like art and science is something like a, a melody, counter-melody aspect of your book and your life, swapping backwards and forwards. I mean, did growing up with an academic mother maybe lean you towards academia, do you think?
0: I remember a lot of her career path. When I was small, she was getting her PhD. So it took her 10 years to finish because she had me and my brother during that time. And so I remember hearing a lot about what grad school was like. She used to drag me to these seminars that were so boring. I mean, (laughs) as a child, I would sit there and there'd be these random musical instruments playing because she focused on something called atonal music. So this music, they'll kind of win against the 12-tone scale traditional music that we sort of hear on the radio and things. And I would just fall asleep. And that was all fine until I started to snore. <laughs> you know, and she'd have to like nudge me awake. But yeah, I think it's true that being around that environment, my mom didn't love being a professor. What she really wanted to do was compose music. But I would go to her office with her and I would interact with her students You know, she was interacting with them. And there's something I remember loving about the fact that, like, she had her own office to go to and people looked up to her and she had these responsibilities of mentoring others. And it seemed like a great deal of freedom to be a professor at the time as a child looking at her, you know, like the summers, there was a lot of freedom there. There were these things called sabbaticals, which I had no clue about. I'm actually on one right now, and I'm, you know, loving it. So I think there was even an unconscious feeling of comfort in that environment.
1: And you did follow, I guess one would say, the traditional academic path to an extent, right? You studied science at university. You went on to do a do a PhD. But I think we have to talk about how it could have been very, very different, right? And you could have gone down, and did go down, I suppose, a very different route for a time, You left science to train and work as an actor.
0: Yes. When I was in my first PhD program, and when I say first, of course, that means you're going to hear about another one. (laughs) But like the first one was right out of undergrad. I had gone to MIT, which was my plan, and started this PhD program in astrophysics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And during that first year, I was incredibly divided because I had discovered this love of acting at Exeter, I had stumbled into an audition for this play, Steel Magnolias, which of course went on to become its own movie. And then that led to like acting in one play after another. And like, I became the acting girl on campus, you know, and I was proctor of the observatory. And, and there seemed to be no conflict in high school doing that. It was very much, a you know, experience everything that you can at school. But then as I got higher and higher in academia, you know, onto college and such, it, it seemed clear that you had to choose something. Hmm. Um, and so I went into that first PhD program, even though I, at MIT, I had continued to kind of reach for arts and humanities whenever I could, just because my mind willfully went into that program didn't mean that that dream was going to just magically disappear. That other dream of acting and continuing. And it started to come back up during that first year As you might imagine, when you're not fully present with something, it's hard to really give it, you know, all of your attention, all of your energy, and so my grades to suffer. Um, And I had a professor who suggested that I um, explore other career options, and and that felt very devastating to me.
1: And if I can jump in, I mean, this is a fairly monumental thing to be told, right? But it's given such brevity in your book, right? This huge point of transition. But it weighed heavily, I'm sure.
0: It's true. And I have been asked that once before of like, you know, you don't say that much about it in the book. And I think I didn't want to give it so much weight, nor did I want to let resentment into the story. Because ultimately, I had to work through that moment many, many years later. Um, At first, I took it as confirmation that, okay, you know, I don't see anyone around who looks like me. This person probably saw through me, I'm not supposed to be here. I might as well go pursue that other dream, acting. At first, I felt free. I left, I applied to acting schools and got in, and it felt like this huge weight you know lifted off my shoulders, like, phew, that dream is done. Like now we can focus on the acting. But it was going to keep coming back because the way I had left, It was like a double whammy. The first comment that was made, and I know now, and I think I do mention this in the book, I would never say that to a student now as a professor. Like we have that much influence and yet we are not powerful enough to be able to see into the future and see that someone is not cut out to be X, Y, or Z. Like I am not that powerful, but I can be incredibly influential. So I had to forgive both that professor for making that comment. And then I had to forgive myself for internalizing it, because that was the second whammy, was like, I internalized that comment, you know, as meaning I shouldn't be here.
1: So here we are then. So you're doing this PhD program. The professor suggests that you think again and wields this power. And so you very much do then, and a whole different life begins, I suppose.
0: It does. I flew to Los Angeles and started an MFA program at UCLA. And, you know, at first it felt like playtime, you know, it was like, this is grad school. Like they're asking me to read plays and, and bring in poems and act them out and learn how to speak in certain ways. But what I realized was that it was very challenging in a totally different way. You know, in science, no one seemed to care about how I felt about what I was learning. What seemed most important was could I digest all the information sufficiently enough to pass that exam? Could I, you know, produce that problem set and turn it in? No one ever asked, you know, how do you feel about this work that you're doing? That was my perception. And then here in acting, how I feel is the currency being able to do the work. And I was being asked to kind of resurrect every experience I'd had from childhood all the way up through adulthood, both the positive and the negative, and have those feelings and emotions, you know, on my shoulders and under the skin so that I could reproduce them and use them to embody these characters and that was incredibly challenging especially from you know someone who'd been a budding scientist for so long and it was all about objectivity suddenly everything was subjective and it was about me as if i were experiencing this situation and this feeling and this emotion and learning how to use my body to communicate i had been talking from the neck up thus far And then I was learning about all these different resonant cavities and the nasal and the sinus cavity and the skull resonator and the chest resonator and all these different ways I could communicate that allowed my whole body to be alive and vibrant in the communication. And there was a very technical side to acting, too, that I had no clue. You know, I mean, people told me when I auditioned, the person at one of these schools said, you know, you have great talent. You need training. And I remember thinking, like, what does that mean? Like, I had no idea that acting required the same training that the physical sciences do, that piano does, that every single discipline, every single field that one might go into requires that kind of discipline training, and acting was no different.
1: I mean, you obviously threw yourself at it then. You did your master's degree in acting then.
0: Yeah, I couldn't just do the thing. I have to study it, because I guess I really am like a eternal academic in many ways. Like I've got to approach it from that idea of studying.
1: And you took it quite a long way. I mean, if listeners were to go and look you up on IMDB right now, there you are, right? You were, you were there.
0: It's true. I had some exciting successes. I remember, you know, getting my SAG card was a very monumental step as an actor. The Screen Actors Guild now it's SAG-AFTRA, but it was like that meant that I could work as a union actor that I, of course, command higher fees, but it was a real place of honor of like I've stepped into this upper echelon of professional actors. And that was for acting in a movie called Nine Lives that was directed by Rodrigo Garcia and premiered at Sundance. And it was an incredible honor and a, a huge amount of fun to to do that film.
1: Obviously after acting you did return to academia and you described that journey in your book. And you had a second go at doing your PhD And it can be quite tough to get back into science. What was your experiences of returning to research?
0: I mean, I had been gone for 11 years, what we consider a solar cycle. Um, And in many ways, I had to learn things for the first time. It had been so long and many things i had forgotten, many things I felt like I never learned. You know, I was an African-American student and a black student in a field that was dominated by white men. I was an older returning student, 10 years older than my peers. And then I was a classically trained actor. So, you know, there was this trifecta of issues that contributed to the imposter syndrome. And people would ask me in my department, you know, yeah, I heard you, you went to acting school. What was that like? And I would change the subject as quickly as possible because I wanted to be considered and taken seriously as a scientist. And one of these mentor programs that I found this time around, I really like. did all of the do's this time. I did not isolate as I had in the first PhD program. I went after everything. Like This mentorship program for black and brown students in the geosciences, they let me in, even though I was an astronomer. <laughs> and it was started by Dr. Ashanti Johnson, who was the first African-American woman to earn a PhD in chemical oceanography from one of the schools here in the US. And this program matched me with a mentor who was a black woman from Ghana and chemical engineer. And she told me that my theater background was my superpower. And that really changed everything for me. I recognized that this background that I was kind of trying to hide actually was an advantage. It made giving talks, you know, science talks. I was able to do that kind of thing with relative ease. The Q&A portion took some work because I wasn't used to people breaking the fourth wall, you know, that, that exists. And so that really helped empower me. And honestly, I worked really hard. Being an older student, I was married at that time and my husband and I had left very well paying jobs in LA for me to move to Seattle. And so I knew I wasn't there to mess around. I mean, I finished that program in five years. It's typically six is how long it takes. And I think research, once I found the thing I wanted to do, which was looking at how ice interacts with different types of light from stars and how that interaction affects climate and habitability, I really was all in. You know, it took a little time to find that research question that made me want to get up every morning and work on it. That's what every grad student wants, you know, dreams of. But once I found it, it flowed, you know, and I had great advisors who helped walk me through what I needed to learn to be able to do the research. And I'm very independent and independently motivated. And so that aspect of being a dissertating grad student came very easily to me.
1: Unpeppered throughout your book are quite sobering accounts Of your experiences as an African American woman working in academia, both science academia and acting academia as well. But if we think about the science, you make the point that you were only the 15th black woman to receive a PhD in astronomy or astrophysics at the time. Maybe you can tell me about some of your experiences and and how they've shaped you.
0: Well, I'm so grateful to people like Jamie Valentine Miller, who has kept this record. There's the AAWIP, the African American Women in Physics, and she has chronologically kept track of all of the african-american women who have received doctorates and now the aawip also you know catalogs grad students those who have not yet completed their phds but very nearly there and so it goes all the way back and yeah i was the 15th at the time when i got my phd in 2014 and then if we include beyond just astrophysics but other physics disciplines the numbers are a little bigger but It's still so minuscule compared to the number of doctorates awarded annually in the U.S. And that feeling of imposter syndrome, this thing of feeling like I'm acting a part, um, that has never fully gone away. Just because I've continued to succeed and now have tenure and have a team and have been awarded grants and this and that, that feeling may never go away. And I was told this by some mental health facilitators, one in particular who ran a process group for graduate women of color when I was in my second PhD program. And I remember asking him, like, does the imposter syndrome ever go away? And he was a Black man. And he was like, nope. Um, <laughs> it just gets a little bit quieter. And that's what I've discovered. You know, it's like until the faculty, the department is filled with people of color, I'm probably always going to feel a little bit like a fish out of water or, you know, lonely in that way, or at least alone. But what I realize now is that I don't have to let those thoughts of like, uh, I feel like an actor when I'm a scientist. I feel like a scientist when I'm around other actors. I don't have to let that affect the actions that I take. Like going back to that comment from that professor at Madison, I internalized it and allowed it to inform what I did next. And honestly, I wouldn't change it for the world because it's why I am who I am. It's why I have the life I do. It's why I, you know, have the daughter I have and the husband I have. It set in motion a series of events that would not have occurred had I stayed in that PhD program. But you know what I'm saying? It's like life happens and things happen in ways that we don't expect. And now today, as I feel these feelings and people who listen you know, may also reside in predominantly white spaces, whatever you're doing, whether it's science or something else, and you may be a person of color or a person who's older than your cohort and you feel singled out or isolated for that reason or any number of reasons why we can feel set apart. It's important to recognize those feelings, those fears, And then do it anyway. It's like the fears will pass once I acknowledge them and become aware and accept them. I don't want to get stuck in them. I do have to recognize them and be like, okay, yeah, you're afraid. Now let's do the thing. <laughs> let's get on with it.
1: I mean, you talk about imposter syndrome there. I mean, having read the book, one thing that does come across on one word that I wrote down is turmoil. I think professionally you've got the the draw of science versus acting. But personally as well, I mean you take it back to high school and you write about whether to sit at the lunch table with your white roommates or at the table with your black and brown other kids at school who maybe you didn't know quite as well. Oh
0: my gosh, yes. Turmoil, that is a good word to describe it. That sense of self-doubt permeated in different spaces. It wasn't only in academia. And as you point out, going back to high school, to that sense of I had always grown up around white people. Those are the neighborhoods I lived in. And those were the people I felt most comfortable around, which was an incredibly confusing experience, given that I am not a white person. And it's like, there's a part in the book when I talk to my younger self, you know, from later on life. And I'm like, if I could just talk to you now, and mainly I'm talking about the academic part, that was me talking to my college self. But I would love to go back even further to the high school self. And it's like, not sweating the small stuff. And yes, at the time, it felt like the opposite of the small stuff. It felt like the most important choice every day to walk in there and wonder if I was going to Be turning my back on my people, my race, to not sit at that table, even though I didn't feel as comfortable at that table as I did at the table of the girls that I interacted with every day in the dorm. I also write about how I had to kind of like confront that innate prejudice that I carried at times, where I, you know, as a Black person, had a fear of other Black men, you know, even though intellectually I knew that white men are more likely to be the serial killer, you know, <laughs> like the um, statistics tell us that, you know, and I had to sort of challenge that from a scientist perspective and say, what's going on here? And then I had to physically like put myself in spaces where I was surrounded by black and brown people. Um, because what I realized was that it was about exposure and experience. And I was, yes, more comfortable with what I was familiar with, but it didn't mean that I couldn't become more comfortable with what I was as yet unfamiliar with. And I really wanted to feel that other black people were my kindred. And an undergrad, I planted myself in the all black dorm, you know, and ended up making some of the dearest friends that I still have today, you know, and recognizing that that inner turmoil of being unable to accept myself Mm -hmm. and accept that I wanted to be around whoever I felt got me, that that could be the most important thing. And ultimately, that's the way I live now today. Just being friends with people that I like, whatever their color, whatever their experience. And it seems a lot, I think it seems a lot, I want to say easier, but more organic and authentic to do that today But in high school, let's be honest, often there's a click aspect. And so it becomes very important to, like, establish yourself and who are your people.
1: And for young black budding scientists, as if you described yourself, who pick up your book and read it, what are you hoping that they'll get from it?
0: My hope is that they know that if there's no one that they can look up to as a role model, that they can be their own role model. I want them to know that there's no one way to be a scientist. There's no one way to be an actor. There's no one way to be anything in this world. The way to do it is to be them doing it, and that they're not alone. There are mentorship programs out there, and they're, I'm sure, even more around today than when I was a grad student, but mainly it's about, you know, embracing and accepting myself, that that's my hope for them, whoever they are, whatever their background or set of circumstances or the obstacles that they see that might be blocking their pathway to whatever they want for this life, that it starts with, and what this book is really that journey to discovering that really what the outside world was telling me about who I should be or what was acceptable was not what I needed to be listening to. What I needed to be listening to was who I felt I was in my heart, what I wanted, and what I felt called to do. And then I didn't have to do a whole lot. Once I acknowledged that those parts of me acting in astronomy were very much present, that really set things in motion for the universe to show me ways to combine them. You know, I had been working very hard to figure it out. You know, it needs to be astronomy. It needs to be acting. It needs to be this. As you'll discover in the book, many of those miracles came about through really not doing very much at all, but embracing and accepting that those parts were there.
1: And do you think that highlighting these experiences will be illuminating to folk who've maybe come from a more privileged background who haven't experienced them?
0: I think it is important. You know, in the US, we had a resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement several years ago in response to George Floyd's murder. And that was a tender time, especially especially for those of us who identify as Black people. And I remember in academia, I was grateful that my institution didn't look to me to tell them what needed to be done to encourage more Black and Brown students to attend UCI. They didn't add on the burden of doing that kind of footwork um, because people may not know, those in the majority may not know that, that Black and Brown professors and staff just being on a campus and doing the work that we do we carry a burden on ourselves to be in those predominantly white spaces, to be doing the work that we're doing amidst micro and macro aggressions that occur in the workplace. And we have to do all the things that are necessary to be able to attain promotion, which includes service and teaching and research and, you know, and all of our scholarship and all these things that honestly, the predominantly white males who occupy these positions aren't having to contend with, you know, we get disproportionately asked to do service. And so that idea of like that extra time that many of us do service, that extra time is being spent writing and doing scholarship for people who are not being asked those things. So I appreciated the people who are in the majority recognizing that it is their job to do that work to make the spaces more inclusive for other groups. However, it can be very helpful, you know, when asked to share our experiences. And I think it does help those who are allies understand really what many people are going through both at the faculty level And as students, you know, the black and brown students in my classes, like their backpacks are a lot heavier than the backpacks of other students walking into that classroom. And it's important for me, too, to be aware of that, especially if they are starting to struggle academically. It's important to ask if that's available to me, if that's an environment where the student is open to sharing that, you know, and then I can ask, is there anything else going on that you would like or, you know, feel comfortable sharing about because one might find out that they're holding down three jobs, you know, on top of trying to become a student. And some are not. But I think having that more expansive and an open idea of what both students and faculty of color from historically marginalized communities might be shouldering in their positions is an important tool and piece of this discussion of how do we make these spaces more inclusive and more conducive to these students and faculty staying not just you know getting there but staying and retaining them
1: your book has been out for a little while now and obviously you've held this mirror up to yourself and introspection can be a little bit frightening i suppose to peer at yourself what has it taught you about you do you think
0: it's taught me that I have the ability to craft a narrative. I'd written a lot of research articles, you know, scientific papers, and a dissertation is a book. And so it, it is a narrative, of course, but this idea of like an arc with everything from the, the whole, I have these things I have to look up, like rising action, climax to falling action, denouement. like There's all these different parts of a story that I got to see that I can go the distance with that. I've also learned that the amount of connections that writing a book for a general audiences, as opposed to this very small and insular science subfield that I'm in, has allowed me to make connections with people all over the world and being honest. You know, it's like, I think Hemingway said, you know, write the truest sentence that you know. And I tried to do that in this book, you know, that every sentence there is a sentence that's true for me especially the ones that are scary. And I got to see that I had the courage to write them down, even though it exposed me, you know, in a very vulnerable way. That's the difference between writing a memoir and writing a novel. The memoir really is like, that's me. And I think that I'm okay with that.
1: Well, if we bring it full circle, maybe full orbit, I suppose, your last few chapters you dedicate to talking about exoplanets and the search for life on other worlds. And this is clearly a powerful driver for you professionally, Why is it such an important thing for you as a researcher?
0: I mean, now that I'm a mom and I have, you know, my daughter that I'm talking to her about planets and she knows all the planets in the solar system. And and we talk about exoplanets too. And this idea that we could answer the question, are we alone within, if not my lifetime, within her lifetime, that she could grow up in a universe where there are multiple origins of life. That continues to motivate the work that I do because I think knowing that would allow all of us, her included, to feel less alone, more connected and simultaneously more precious that a lot of our problems will not seem so large with this knowledge that when we look up at the sky at night, there's someone, something looking back at us. So I continue to think about that because it's an important endeavor And what would it be like if we all were allowed to be involved in it? You know, if we look back to the Apollo missions, we got a man to the moon, and that was the specific mandate, put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. And we did that. And the mission control was very homogeneous, both in terms of race and gender at the time. And what would it be like if today we allowed everyone from those of us who are trained as scientists to The middle school girls in my Rising Star Girls program, which encourages girls to explore the universe using the creative arts, and they do artist-inspired depictions of exoplanet environments, they have a place at the table, too, because their imaginations that craft these exoplanet environments could be what actually allows us to identify the next planet where life exists. So I think this expansive viewpoint on answering this question, along with a mandate from someone of like, we're going to answer it by the end of the 2050s or something like that. How amazing and important would it be if we could dedicate ourselves to answering that question? I'm pretty excited about what could transpire.
1: Aumwa Shields, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
1: Aumwa Shields there. Her book, Life on Other Planets, a memoir of finding my place in the universe, is out now. That's it for Episode 6 of Nature Hits the Books. If you have any feedback on the show, why not ping us an email to podcast at nature.com with the subject line, Nature Hits the Books. Otherwise, look out for the next episode in the new year. The music used in this episode was called To Clarity by Airay via Epidemic Sound and Getty Images. I'm Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening.